Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. China says it's prepared for a protracted trade war with the U.S. and has no fear about sacrificing short-term economic interests. After a weekend of claims by U.S. President Donald Trump that he has the upper hand in the trade war with China, Beijing responded through state media, saying the nation is ready to endure the economic fallout. U.S. pork and beef have been targeted by China in the first round of the trade war. Xu Wei is the general manager of one of Shanghai's largest food importers. His U.S. food imports have dropped sharply. We used to pay just 24% tariffs for U.S. pork in China, but now the taxes have risen to over 50%. It's the U.S. producers that will suffer from the policy and their income will see a drop. Chinese businesses say the tariffs are not a major blow as they can easily find alternative suppliers from Europe and Australia. You supported um, tariffs on imported steel in the 2016 campaign. I'm wondering what you think of the president's announcement on tariffs. And I should point out Peter Navarro just on Fox uh, News just a moment ago uh, just said that, um, that Mexico and Canada would be exempt uh, temporarily effective immediately. Look, what I have said over and over again and what I believe is we have a very serious problem in terms of the deindustrialization of the United States of America. We have seen tens of thousands of factories shut down. Millions of hardworking people, decent people, have lost their jobs as factories go to China and Mexico. There are other reasons. Automation plays a role as well. This is an issue that we have got to deal with. I happen to think we need a more comprehensive approach than what Trump is talking about. I think the main target of our concern has got to be China. We have a $375 billion trade deficit with China. Uh, Trump, I think, today, yesterday, said that he wants to reduce that by $1 billion. That is not enough. China is dumping steel clearly all over the world, and I think China is the major country uh, that we've got to deal with. I would personally favor the repeal of permanent normal trade relations with China. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't a tariff A risk a trade war, and also that while it will help you know, manufacturing in the United States, it's going to raise prices on cars, it's going to raise well, prices it, on... it depends on how it is done. But I think uh, that we are in a trade war right now, and we're losing that war. And I think demanding that corporate America start reinvesting in this country rather than in China. Uh, you look at your cell phone. Uh, I don't believe Apple manufactures any cell phones in the United States. It's all done in China. You can't buy a television manufactured in the United States of America. We have to deal with that issue. And it's not going to be easy. But I think we have to do it in a comprehensive way uh, and demand that American companies are not running to countries where they're paying people two bucks an hour while throwing American workers out on the street. That's wrong. There's, a, there's legislation in the Senate that would roll back provisions on, on Dodd-Frank. It's got bipartisan support. Yeah. They say it's going to help community banks, it's going to help credit unions be more flexible in lending. You're opposed to it. I am strongly opposed to it. Why? What this legislation would do is deregulate 25 out of the largest 38 banks in this country. It amazes me how short memories are in the United States Congress. In 2007, 2008, this country was hurled into the worst economic downturn in the modern history of this country because of the greed and the recklessness and the illegal behavior of major financial institutions. And what's happened since the deregulation, since Dodd-Frank, I should say, is we have seen the largest banks become even larger. 
what the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, uh, reported just the other day, as you'll recall, is they said, this moves us closer uh, to the likelihood of another bank failing. Why would we want to do that? Banks are now making, in general, they have made in the last two years record-breaking profits. Yes, we want to help credit unions and small banks, but banks that are worth $200, $250 billion in assets, those are not small banks. Do you think a collapse like we saw in 2008 could happen again? Of course. I mean, are there enough stopgaps in place? Well, but that's precisely what they're doing. They're removing some of those stopgaps, and according to the CBO, it will make it more likely that some of these banks may fail, leading to a massive taxpayer bail. But let me ask you this. I mean, I gotta ask you this is, all over the country, there are issues on people's minds. You know, whether it's guns, immigration, healthcare. It amazes me that this is the issue that the Republican leadership has put on the floor of the Senate. And you know why? Last year, the financial institutions spent $200 million in lobbying. Over the last 20 or 30 years, they have spent billions of dollars on campaigns. So today I have Marshall Auerbach back on the podcast again because he's my favorite leftist economist. And we're going to discuss trade wars, failed capitalism, and choice economies. Welcome, Marshall. Thanks, Tina. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some stuff that's in the news this week. Trump recently imposed 10% tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports. And I think this accounts for around, what, 6% 6 of global trade or some number. Is this a good or a bad thing in your opinion? I mean, I understand that the intent of the tariffs at the end of the day are are to sort of bring back manufacturing in, in the United States. But I'm wondering if that horse has not left the barn Yes, I agree 100% with the way you frame that. Um, and I think that is the goal. It's to, you know, um, break up this so-called uh, Chimerica nexus, you know, where it's, you know, they've, they've offshored everything over to China uh, and then use free trade to import the goods back to uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, in much more cheaply. And um, that, of course, has worked towards... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's worked in two ways in, in, in keeping fairly deflationary in the sense that the threat of offshoring or the actual implementation of it has moderated dem- demands for higher pay to workers, especially given the, the fact that unions have basically been killed in this country. And the importation of the Chinese goods has kept, also kept prices lower. So if, if you reverse that and can re-domicile uh, these supply networks, of course, that, that, that's um, good in theory for workers because it means that it's being produced uh, here in the, in the U.S. Um, again, that's assuming you can. A lot of that manufacturing, I, I don't think it's coming back. But you also run the risk of higher inflation because, remember, this is happening at a time when you've got much fuller employment, much fuller capacity. It's not the 1930s. And so um, the, the, the Federal Reserve might respond to this by – raising rates further, and uh, as they raise rates, um, those um, wage gains could be aborted because the economy could start to slow down again. So that's the risk. So he he may win this particular trade battle with China, but he could lose the inflationary war in the process. Right. So, you know, and let's talk about that for a second, the wages. So, you know, we've had a couple of reports that have come out in the last uh, eight months and what we've seen is more of the economy going up into the 1%. Everybody's talking about how great the economy yeah. is. And it's undoubtedly true that the, the stock market is on fire. But I don't, think, I don't think this is really an accurate way to look at the entire economy because the people on the bottom rung 
have actually lost some ground in this booming economy. And I'm very concerned about the income inequality. And I'm not sure that that's accurately being addressed by these actions. Yeah, that's right. It, it, well, it, it's certainly an inefficient way to do it. It's like using a, a sledgehammer to, to um, uh, do surgery rather than use a scalpel. And, and I agree that it's not um, particularly helpful because, um, as you point out, the, the, the tax cuts um, were largely directed towards um, the upper income people. And not only is that bad from a, a moral standpoint, but, you know, these people have a higher propensity to save rather than consume. Uh, you know, they save more um, and, and they don't consume right. as much. So the so-called multiplier effect um, of the tax cuts right. is, is, is diminished somewhat. Right, because this money is literally stagnant in the accounts of the 1%. It's not circulating through the economy whatsoever. It's just sitting there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, generally, people that have the, the people that have the highest propensity to assume to spend money are those at the uh, the lower middle income ground. So they, they, they don't have the same kind of um, cushion which allows them to uh, to save. And so, um, you know, the, 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 so you're, you're right. I mean, the, the stock market rising is not um, – is not surprising, but I mean the stock market is like some little prick in in in, in the universe now that doesn't affect like ninety nine percent of the people out there. You know, this is exactly. like trading assets between wealthy people right now. That, that's the way it feels to me, anyway. No, and I think that's exactly spot on. It's most Americans don't participate in the stock market, and the ones that are hurting financially are most definitely not participating in the stock market. So I feel that the, the media is missing the conversation here every time they say that the economy is doing well, because I think it's a very sick economy because it's so imbalanced. Um, yeah, and the, and, the, and the other problem, too, is that if you start getting higher inflation, people say, oh, it's only about um, 2.5%, uh, 3% right now, um, but that pretty well erodes all of the any of the minimal wage gains that um, uh, workers have been right. getting. So that in real terms, they don't feel any better off. And that's another reason, I think, why you know Trump hasn't been benefiting politically uh, in the run-up to the midterms, because um, the this feel-good economy is only uh, feeling good to about one to five percent of the population. Five percent being generous. Exactly, and I think the other part of that equation um, that you're hitting on is that. These folks that have been left behind in, in this um, economy, and they're, they they trusted him to change it, and they looked to him when he said, I'm going to drain the this, this swamp, I'm going to bring jobs back, all of these campaign promises, that he absolutely hasn't delivered on. If anything, he's made the, the swamp even more swampy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more um, crocodiles in the in the uh, in the swamp right, right now than there was before. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the other problem is that well, the reality is, um, unlike, say, Germany or Japan, this country has not placed the same kind of priorities on um, maintaining a, a robust manufacturing sector. And so a lot of those jobs, uh, a lot of those manufacturing uh, positions are gone because people that have this, the skills to do them, I mean, their skills have largely eroded or they've, they've, they've uh, or, you know, people that would have gone to, say, trade school to learn how to do these skills, they're just not... Um, they're just not there anymore, um, and, and, and so um, you, you, you don't have a sufficient industrial ecosystem. Now, of course, you know, I suppose you could bring it back. You could, um, in, in the reversal of World War II, you could have the, the Germans and the Japanese coming over here to retrain our people and become engineers again, but you know, that's a long-term process. And I say that partly facetiously because, yeah. of course, there's no reason why Germany or Japan should help uh, revive American manufacturing. Right. 
Yeah, why would they? They would have no vested interest in that. So so assuming that, that we are now living in a phase where the status quo is that globalization is here to stay and that capital mobility is here to stay, that these are permanent, um, I'm wondering what some alternatives are because I do think the the next football that's running to ready the next toxic football that's getting ready to explode is is uh, the credit market and the student loan market. I think uh, if you look at these numbers, folks are maxed out, and the Feds ha- keep raising rates. The cost of credit gets more expensive, and they're they're not able to pay off their bills already. What happens when they raise rates further, and they they have an even harder time um, paying these things off? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, it, it, the, the, that's the real problem. That even though you you might you've got an economy that's you know getting closer to full employment, I would say it's still got a ways to go. But it's certainly better than it was six, seven years ago. But the the problem is you still have this pre-existing stock of of private debt, and um, you know you have this uh, additional situation where so many public goods, like to say the student uh, housing, uh, the student loan market, has been privatized and. Um, so public goods, as you like, it become private rents. And unlike other previous uh, economic recessions, this one, in, in this particular one back in 2008, uh, you know, we're 10 years on, but we never really had the reckoning or the, the write-down of private debt that, was, that has been characteristic of other major financial um, crashes. Uh, where, you know, you, you, effectively, policy was... Uh, directed towards establishing the status quo ante as much as possible. And um, in that regard, they were very successful. So I worry that the next time we, we come unstuck, we, we still have this big structural flaw. Uh, and, as you, and in the meantime, inequality has grown even more. Uh, so it, it, the, the, it, the next downturn, I think, could be very, very unpleasant as a result, because I don't think, um, you know, you have it, it will... Um, uh, be uh, people will have the same kind of tolerance for um, what happened in 2008. Right, right. You know, and I feel um, I want to talk about Karl Marx for a second. We were um, discussing him offline before we we um, started recording. I want to talk because I think, yeah. yeah, I think he had some very salient criticisms of capitalism that were very prescient that we're seeing come into it to fruition. And I think credit is part of that conversation. You know, uh, there was a time I would say yeah. in the United States where where employers, where the capitalists had to be concerned with worker pay because they needed to have the workers um, have expendable income enough money to buy the, the goods that they were manufacturing. They needed to be worried about who they were selling widgets to. And I think globalization has removed that barrier because when they opened up the marketplace to to this the entire world, they didn't have to worry about workers in the United States being paid well enough. They were going to be able to sell their goods somewhere else. It was, you know, just that's where it went. And I think the second rung of that was they created a credit market that also picked up the slack of not increasing increasing wages. But I think we're at that that stage now where both of those things are tapped out, where this is like, where do we go next? And uh, yeah, yeah, that's. I think that's a good assessment. Um, the fact is that um, we have been reliant for the last thirty years uh, on not so much on income growth, but on credit growth, and um, and and more and more people have been using um, credit to sustain their lifestyles, especially the lower to middle classes, and that's why. After 2008, it was so disastrous for such a large proportion of the population. There's been a lot of work done by by this uh, uh, in this area by uh, the economists Steve Fazari and Barry Cinnamon, and um, they pointed out that um, 
whereas the upper income people were able to sustain their consumption out of income flows, uh, increasingly um, middle-class Americans, working-class Americans had to resort to more and more uh, debt, and um, that really uh, caused their consumption pattern to collapse completely after the uh, 2008 crisis. And you know, we, we, you know, people can say, well, capitalist system, you know, you don't, you're, you're not going to get equality of outcome. That's what communism is all about. And, and, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, um, and, and I accept that. And, you know, you, you do hope that you'd get a better, um, you do hope for equality of opportunity, um, as, as, a, as another factor. And, um, that's certainly not been the, the case. Uh, so, um, I think that's the real, and that really comes back to what you were saying earlier about Marx, because you know it, it, it all goes into you know power relations and the old um, golden rule. You know he was the gold rule, so to speak. So um, yes. uh, th- yeah, that's a, that's a, another real problem. And and uh, the the final point that you mentioned, globalization, that's created another issue because you know we've really got two kinds of inequality going on. Um, we have um, uh, intranational you know, inequality, inequality within, say, a specific country like in the United States, and that's been growing. And then at the same time, because of globalization, you've got this huge uh, international inequality between, say, uh, peasants in China and, and India vis-a-vis American workers. And um, as you globalize and as you make capital mo- mobile, it facilitates this um, global labor, labor arbitrage, which um, I think puts persistent pressure on uh, wages in the in the Western world and um, and China's huge growth uh, and, and its large role as playing the if you like the manufacturer of, of last resort has um, mm-hmm. has helped to um, keep this ongoing pressure on wages because the way people try to compete with that onslaught is to cut the wages of workers and um, you know if you keep doing that over and over again um, uh, you get this race to the bottom with as far as wages go. You know, and that's a really valid point because they're making a choice here. They're choosing to cut the wages of workers instead of having anything affect uh, their profits, and uh, which is one of the biggest beefs I had with the tax scam bill was there was this argument being made that if they did this, it would increase wages. But there's there's never been a relationship between where wages are and, and this sort of thing. They're going to chase profits no matter what. And they're only going to increase wages when they have the pressure to do so. If they have no pressure to increase wages, why will they? They'll just keep sucking up uh, sucking up the profits. And I think the other thing we're seeing as a bad outcome of that is the stock buybacks. I think the vast majority yep. of money generated by this has, that these corporations have, have literally bought back more stock, which again, further enriches the 1%. Goldman Sachs saying that share buybacks have surged 80% year-to-date. CNBC's Bob Pisani is watching this uptick and what it could be for the year. Bob. Hello, Michelle. It's not just a big year for earnings. You know, it's a big year for buybacks as well. Now, Goldman Sachs estimates that buybacks could hit a record $1 trillion this year. That's a rise of 46% from last year. Now, part of it is due to tax reform, but revenue growth has also been a big contributor. Here's the good news. August is the most popular month for repurchase executions, accounting for 13% of annual activity. That's according to Goldman. It's even possible this recent rally is partly fueled by those buybacks. The buyback blackout period has now ended for most companies because the quarter's mostly over. Not surprisingly, the tech sector in particular will benefit from surging buybacks. Tech has accounted for 40% of the year-to-date 
repurchase authorization. Now, here's the bad news. Not all buybacks are created equal. Don't think of it that way. It's the share count reduction that matters. And while some companies are indeed reducing their shares, Apple's the great example. They've been reducing their share counts outstanding by about 5%. Look at that, five-year charts, share count reduction for Apple since 2013. But a lot of others are increasing the share count by offering new options to their management, often at the same time they announce the buybacks. So in the long run, it's a wash, and the share count does not actually go down. Pay attention to that. While the S&P overall saw a share count reduction in 2016 and 2017, so far this year, the total share count reduction has actually increased by a half a percent here. And so they take away on the back end, but they add on the front end by giving more options to their to their executives here. It's a little frustrating if you're following the whole game. Back to you. Bob, when we consider the... I want to talk a little bit about uh, this mistaken belief in the United States that socialism is tied to both totalitarianism and command economies. Um, I think part of the problem is that in the United States, we're not, you know, you're in Canada, but in the United States, we don't teach this stuff in school. I was exposed to Karl Marx only because I studied philosophy. I had a, I had a specific course on Marx's philosophy. So, yeah, they don't really teach it in, in um, um, uh, university economics courses because economics is largely uh, predicated on, I guess Marx would say, it's predicated on sustaining the existing capitalist system. <laughs> right. I mean, I think if you, so you don't really look at alternatives. No, you you open up any any book in any economy economy class that I had. It was the first thing you see is markets. You know, so it's they're already starting from a yeah. square one that assumes that capitalism is the only mode of economy, which is um, I think it's crazy. So I want to talk about this a little minute for a minute because I think it's a mistake to believe that all free markets, all uh, choice economies. Are capitalists? They're not. I mean, capitalism was a 19th century concept. So, I mean, this came to be in a recent era, and before that, there was exchanges going on in marketplaces that were clearly um, not command economies. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, in yeah. your in your opinion, as an economist, um, what would be one of one of the better uh, choices to go with if we were if we were going to look at another system than capitalism? I, you know, I, I, I've always been a believer in a mixed economy in the, in the sense that, you know, if I, if I had to pick my own ideal model, it would be, you know, the, 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 Swedish, the Swedish Scandinavian model, you know, a, a, a social democratic model, which is by and large still uses, um, you know, market mechanisms uh, in, in most areas. You know, even in the U.S., let's be honest, um, we, we have a mixed economy. I mean, uh, things like Social Security, Medicare. Uh, even our national defense; those are all, you know, state-driven ventures. Um, but we, uh, you know, the, the, this country has cho chosen to direct uh, government resources towards uh, uh, different areas of national priority. So, um, you know, it, whether that be sustaining empire via uh, a defense expenditures, which are larger than the next uh, ten countries so combined, or um, yeah. you know, thing, things like that. Or we, we, there, there are certain corporate subsidies which are given, which are, are, are certainly um, um, uh, socialistic. And I mean, there, there's that joking line about, you know, we, in this country we have socialism for the rich and, and capitalism for the rest of us. So, uh, you know, uh, I, right. the, the fact of the matter is that we become a much less, quote-unquote, capitalist free market uh, society or economy in, in the U.S. since the 1930s. We made decisions at that time that... Um, you know, you needed a reasonable uh, social welfare net um, to sustain more social cohesion, 
and it was also felt, and I think for good reasons, that uh, you, you, um, if you didn't, for example, backstop the banking system, that you would have much more intense financial crises and much more uh, harm to people. And after the, the Second World War, we, we did actually, um, um, I guess maybe the, the war brought us closer together in terms of the common national purpose, and there was greater emphasis on social cohesion, and that was gradually unwound in the 1980s and 90s when we started undertaking more financial deregulations and, and re-embraced um, you know, what I would call more market fundamentalist uh, uh, yeah. philosophy. Um, so, but that's, that's really a product of over um, 30 years of hacking away at any kind of um, uh, social welfare programs and uh, uh, other areas which, would have, which helped reduce inequality, for example. That's right. Um, you know, it's, I think we sort of reached an apex with FDR when he was in office because he did adopt a lot of socialist programs. Um, although, you know, I love I love this discussion now that we're having on FDR that he wasn't that they weren't socialist programs. Well, they absolutely were. But part of what happened was that administration rightfully was afraid of using that word because they thought if they adopted that word, people would not listen to what the programs were about and shy away from it because they'd been fed this steady diet of, you know, socialism is a command economy, it's evil, it's bad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, yeah, that's yeah, right. There was all sorts of um, um, accounting tricks and, and, and political salesmanship that was done because people were scared, especially at that time when you had the, the red menace and, um, and um, you had the fall of capitalist economies in Europe, the, the threat of Nazism. I mean, so for example, I mean, FDR himself, for example, was, against uh, uh, federal uh, deposit insurance uh, uh, scheme. I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking, more particularly with the overwhelming majority who use banks for the making of deposits and the drawing of checks. First of all, let me state the simple fact that when you deposit money in a bank, the bank does not put the money into a safe deposit vault. It invests your money into many kinds of loans. Lately, we've had a bad banking situation. Some of our bankers have shown themselves either incompetent or dishonest in the handling of the people's funds. They have used the money entrusted to them in speculations and unwise loans. This was, of course, not true when the vast majority of our banks but it was true in enough of them to shock the people for a time into a sense of insecurity. Many Americans rushed to their financial institutions to withdraw money that was no longer there. As you know, many Americans lost their life savings as well as their trust in banks. Rest assured, your government has acted on this situation to ensure that it never happens again. We have created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. This agency will insure the account in every bank that participates up to $2,500. That means that if your bank engages in bad deals and they are unable to regain the money used from your account, the U.S. government will pay you the amount that was lost as much as $2,500. You can now have confidence in using your local bank again, and confidence and courage are the essentials of success in carrying out our plan. You people must have faith. Let us unite in banishing fear. 
We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system. It is up to you to support and make it work. It is your problem no less than it is mine. Together we cannot fail. And it was only at the insistence of um, uh, his vice president, John Nance Garner, that it was introduced in the, in the final um, bill on, on, on uh, financial reform. It turned out to be one of the most significant things that he did. But, you know, Roosevelt himself thought that might be too socialistic. And likewise, um, you know, Social Security, it's uh, accounted for uh, like it's a, um, it's a pay, pay-go uh, program, like a private insurance policy. But in, rea- in reality, you know, that, that's, that's just a, an accounting trick. You know, the, the, the government always uh, has the money to, um, you know, stick uh, to, to – it's, it's you, you, you find provision to make payments out to uh, existing seniors, and, 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 you take, and, it, and it's, right. it's not – it's a social assurance program. We promise to pay our seniors, and we'll keep providing the fiscal resources to do that going future. But it's not really a, a pay-go program as such, you know, even though it, it, we, we right. account that way. That's right. Um... And I think that's important to, to point out. And then I also have to, you know, and I think that was where we started using liberal as, as this stand-in word for left-side politics, because if you really look at the definition of liberal, it's laissez-faire. It's the opposite of what you would associate yeah. with FDR. Yeah, we got some, started getting into small L liberals and big L liberals, and then nobody wants to be a liberal these days. They want to be a progressive. And then, um, you know, so it's... Everybody wants to be a liberal now. It's, it's almost as if we're re- returning these words to their actual meanings again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I guess uh, uh, because of some of the the, um, the that's been done in the name of liberalism or neoliberalism, people are, are reluctant to use the uh, the L word anymore. But um, you know, so uh, you know, progressivism doesn't seem to have suffered the same taint so far. Although it is interesting that because of people like Bernie Sanders, the the dreaded S word socialism is now becoming um, you know almost an acceptable form of uh, political discourse these days. Well, you know, I will say this, at least you can have the conversation now. I mean, 10 years ago, if I ever said Karl Marx to anybody wanting to discuss these matters, they would look at me with, with just crazy look side-eye because like, who, what, are you crazy? You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. I mean, at least yeah. we've shifted the conversation somewhat into an area where we can actually um, talk about these things and, and what kind of value that they have. Um so I think um, I want to talk a little bit about co-ops for a second, because I think these are a great idea that I'd like to see um, expand. I know they've been um, gaining ground in Spain, for example, but these are these are businesses that are run by workers. So it's not the capitalists running the business and exploiting labor. It's workers running the business. They all own a part of the business. And there's still competition uh, because they're obviously competing with other co-ops. If, if this was a system where, where there was a series of co-ops and they're all making the same widget, well, there would be competition for the consumer because somebody is going to want to make a better widget that at a better price to be able to sell more. You know, So you know what I'm saying? So this, to me, is a really good example of a choice economy that would be beneficial for, um, for both the workers and the consumers. And do you have any opinions on co-ops? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly think it's a it, it's a very uh, useful thing to have, especially. I mean, in 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 finance, you know, you've got um, you've often had co-ops uh, carrying out um, credit intermediation, and they clearly right. don't have the same range of investment banking functions that a lot of the uh, uh, the commercial banks do. So um, they, if you like, restore banking to its original form and purpose. Um, 
of facilitating of recycling money and uh, uh, and providing credit to worthy businesses rather than um, effectively using the capital to 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 bet against existing businesses as as it's often become the case with uh, with uh, banking or investment banking these days so um in, in, in that way they're not that different from uh, um the public banks that are discussed in a lot of areas you know so is it, but right. anything i think that gets you closer to the goal of um banking being consistent or constant with broader public purpose i think it's a good thing and um i think um co-ops certainly get you more in that direction um and i and i again it it takes us away from the silly arguments about um what's you know it, it, something's too big to fail um uh, because it's not so much size per se. I don't want to sound pornographic here when I say size doesn't matter, but um, it's the, the 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 situation you've got now is that not it's not so much size as function which um, causes financial fragility. As I always say to people, you know, look, the the Japanese post office savings bank is uh, a, a massive financial institution, uh, but it's far less systemically dangerous than say Goldman Sachs. Uh, even though it's it's way larger, because the range of functions that it undertakes are not nearly as um, systemically significant or systemically dangerous as the type of stuff that I know a Goldman Sachs or even a J.P. Morgan would do. So, um, yeah, I I think it's an interesting concept, and I think that the state bank idea that you just uh, brought up in passing is also an interesting concept. And I think it, it I think that actually might get some traction. I know that some of the states, like Hawaii, had. Um, bills at the state level um, in regards to opening up a state bank. I think, was it in North Dakota that already has a state bank? I can't recall. Yeah, North Dakota has one, and there's others ones that are right. talking about doing it. Talk us through a little bit about the state bank. It's not that different. You know, they, they, they uh, essentially, you know, they, they, they have a fairly limited range of activities. They don't sort of, um, you know, uh, speculate uh, on, you uh, use people, deposit as money effectively to, uh, to backstop their bets. Um, you know, they're, I, if I can use, uh, um, you know, they're like George Bailey's bank uh, versus Mr. Potter's, you know, that's, that's like, I guess the, uh, the, 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 if I can use a Hollywood analogy. That's good. <laughs> no, that's good. I I think it's something that might gain, uh, gain some traction. Um, let's, I want to backtrack and talk, um, some more philosophy. I want to talk about Adam Smith, um, who I think is also ex- exceedingly bastardized. Um, I think we talked about him in the last podcast a little bit. But I think a lot of his criticism um, is also, like Marx's, a lot of his criticism seems to be very prescient. Uh, You know, he often um, talked about profits being the highest in nations that were on the verge of economic failure. And a lot of that was due to uh, uh, what he would say would be profits related to indebting the nation, which I sort of, or indebting the economy. So I'm sort of feeling like we're at that space right now. Uh, Adam Smith is very rarely read. He's worshipped, but not read. So, for example, everyone's heard of the phrase invisible hand, but almost no one knows how he used it. Uh, The term invisible hand actually does appear in his classic Wealth of Nations once. It appears in an argument against what's now called neoliberalism. Uh, Classical, what's now called neoclassical economics that we're supposed to worship. So we're supposed to worship Adam Smith, and neoclassical economics, and they radically differ on the notion invisible hand. Uh, Adam Smith was concerned, as David Ricardo later was, uh, that if there was free movement of capital and free import of goods, uh, he was concerned about England. He said England will suffer 
because uh, British capitalists will invest abroad uh, and they'll import from abroad and that'll harm the English economy. Ricardo had similar concerns. And Adam Smith then gave an argument, it was not a very good argument, but his argument was that uh, English investors will prefer to invest in England because of what some called a home bias. They'll have a preference for investing close by. And therefore, as if by an invisible hand, uh, England will be saved from the menace of free capital movement and uh, of free imports. That's invisible hand. Uh, what, what's that got to do with uh, uh, the Cato Institute or the, or the modern uh, enthusiasm about uh, free capital flow and uh, um, you know, having uh, U.S. corporations uh, invest in China so they can send stuff back here to sell cheap, uh, exploiting Chinese workers. That's not Adam Smith. Uh, and it goes right across the board. I mean, e everyone who went to college uh, learned the first paragraph of Wealth of Nations in which he talks about how wonderful division of labor is, you know, allows for all kind of efficiency and productivity and so on. Uh, not very many people got to page, you know, whatever it is, page 400, uh, in which he points out that division of labor is monstrous uh, because it turns people into creatures as stupid and ignorant as a person can possibly be. Uh, a person who just becomes a machine and that's a, a, a terrible attack on fundamental human rights. And therefore, he says, in any civilized society, uh, the government is going to have to intervene to prevent division of labor. Uh, how many people get that far? You know? In fact, uh, Smith does give arguments for markets, rather nuanced arguments. I'm going to just take what they call trade. You know, the so-called conservatives are very excited that trade is increasing. So, for example, NAFTA is supposed to be a great triumph of conservatism. It, uh, uh, it increased trade between Mexico and the United States. Well, it, it, it's true that cross-border interactions between Mexico and the United States increased. But would Adam Smith or any classical liberal or traditional conservative have called that trade? I mean, suppose General Motors assembles parts in Indiana and sends them to Illinois for uh, as, uh, assembly uh, and then to New York to sell. Is that trade? Well, I suppose it happens to cross the Mexican border, but it's still internal to a huge command economy. Is that trade? Well, it turns out that if you look at the rough figures, which are all that we have, uh, before and after, uh, the part of cross-border interactions between uh, Mexico and the U.S. that was internal to a corporation was about 50%, and now it's about two-thirds. You know, last week we had a, a CEO of a uh, pharmaceutical company actually make the claim that it was the morally correct thing to do to raise prices on these drugs, which you kind of look at that superficially and think to yourself, is this guy serious? <laughs> That's like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I don't know if you saw that. So, um, what what are your thoughts on that? Do you do you perceive the United States at this particular? You know, you often see this term "late stage capitalism" banted around, and I, I actually do think there's some some truth to this. Do you do you think that the American empire is sort of facing a, a critical junction right now in regards to this? Yeah, I I, I do think we're um, you know we're at late stage um, capitalism, um, but I would say that. You know, uh, calling it late-stage capitalism, 
um, is um, probably a bit of a mischaracterization because I don't think it's, I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't even call it capitalism what we do anymore. You know, it, it's, it's, it's cronyism. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, we've got to the point where um, you, the state itself is, has been seized by predator per, forces of corporate predation. And I think it's become more extreme under Trump, but I think it was there um, even under Obama, Clinton, Bush, et cetera. And so they, they continue to direct favors, politically driven favors to, uh, the, 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 the people who uh, the most powerful in our society, um, government itself has moved away from broader public purpose. And so the economy has been uh, corrupted and deformed as a result of that. Um, so it's getting as close to the, uh, the point that Mark talked about the need for, uh, you know, for revolution. I don't know if we get that far, but certainly I could see a big uh, uh, di- dislocation. I mean, certainly um, he, he just says, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, Marx basically didn't think it was possible to move past capitalism without a fundamental overturning of the existing social, political, and philosophical order. And, um, you know, I, I think we're, we're, we're getting close to that point now. So whether you want to call it late stage capitalism, I don't know. I mean, I think we've, we've gone past um, uh, the point of capitalism. To me, it's cronyism. Karl Marx on alienation. Karl Marx believed that work, at its best, is what makes us human. It fulfills our species essence, as he put it. Work allows us to live, to be creative, to flourish. However, the reality in 19th century Europe was that work destroyed workers, particularly those who had nothing to sell but their labour. To the mill and factory owners, a worker was simply an abstract idea with a stomach that needed to be filled. The workers had no choice but to toil long hours for a pitiful wage. What was worse, their labour alienated them. Alienation is a disorienting sense of exclusion and separation. Factory labour, under capitalism, alienated the workers from the product of their labour. They made stuff they couldn't afford to buy which disappeared to shops in far-off places to make money for people who paid them next to nothing. The factory production line split jobs into meaningless tasks that made the hours at work tedious, empty and bleak. They became cogs in a gigantic machine. Workers lived for the few hours at home when they could eat, sleep and relax. The rest of the time, they weren't fully alive. This work also alienated them from each other. The only way out of this drudgery, Marx argued, was for the workers to organise and revolt. They needed to seize the means of production, leading to his famous rallying cry, Workers of the world, unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Yeah, you know, I don't disagree with that. I, I think we live, um, this the platonomy. I don't, you know, people, we, yes, we're structured as a democracy. We're, we're, we are theoretically a representative, representative democracy. We vote, we participate, et cetera, et cetera. But really, we've given a, our government over to the hands of a, a very few rich and powerful individuals that own more than half yeah. the country at this time. So, uh, and the really tragic thing is that the constituents in this country, in this nation, the voters, the the citizens, have allowed this to happen. Um, so, well, they allowed this to happen to some extent through apathy and giving up. Yeah. Um, there has also been structural changes in the sense that 
you know, you've had uh, some degree of voter suppression, um, particularly in the South, uh, and, and voter restrictions. And, I, you know, the whole process of having to register for a political party, uh, I, I think, has restricted participation. That's also been – and then finally, and the most destructive thing at all, and this is the only country that seems to do this, is um, gerrymandering. You know, um, so it's, it's got to the point where – and it, it doesn't seem to be struck down yet by the Supreme Court, even though, you know, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg had it right. You know, the, the voters are supposed to choose their representatives, not the other way around. And so all of those things are – are leading to a system, a political system that's becoming far less responsive to the needs of the average uh, American citizen, and that's uh, the stuff that leads to um, uh, a fundamental overturning of the existing social order if it gets too extreme. Yeah, I would concur. And and oddly enough, or what's counterintuitive to me is that there have been folks in this country, voters, citizens that have actively put in office folks that have been doing these things. And you, and you have conversations with them and you try to get them to see what's going on and they're like just in denial or something. They don't want to see it. So part, I think part of the problem though, is that we have a population that is not um, as educated as they should be in these matters. And I I also think that that's sort of intentional in a way. But you're right. There's been yeah. this vicious cycle of each round of them upping the ante. So the platonomy starts at, at level one. They get elected in at level two, and they add more legislation that further ingrains their power and their um, economic wealth. They get to level three. They enact more laws. So there's been this we're, we're yeah. going up the ladder here where each time they've enacted to the point where I don't see – I don't see how it is resolvable without like some very real pitchforks, angers, anger, angry folks getting out there in the streets and really doing something about it. I think we're getting there. I'm starting to see um, more folks, um, much more clear, including, you know, my parents are now registered independents because they're just, you know, they're, they're Swedish leftists, but they're very disgusted by the Democratic Party. So my mom last week was like, uh, the, the, the Democrats have become, you know, what I would call old school Rockefeller Republicans. Uh, I mean, look, uh, Nixon, for all his uh, warts, um, I would say his domestic program in the 1960s uh, and early 70s was far more um, progressive than anything that was advocated or implemented by either Obama or uh, Clinton. I mean, certainly uh, Nixon's proposed um, health care policies were far more uh, liberal, but then there was a much more of a prevailing liberal consensus than there is today, and that's that's part of the problem. Um, and that as you say, the, the Democrats have been taken over by the same kind of corporate interests that have also, that have for years taken over the Republicans. Mm-hmm. They've, yeah, the entire country has moved to the right. So it, that's just not just the Republicans. Yeah, Republicans. that's right. And so when this, all this talk about, you know, uh, that the Democrats, you know, uh, their base has become hard left, I mean, that's nonsensical. I mean, what's really happened is that you had um, – a, a gradual shift to the right, and now anything that anytime now someone proposes something that would have been considered um, mainstream back in the time of Johnson is now considered hard left or, or socialistic, which is nonsensical. It's so ridiculous. In fact, there was this the guy that put that uh, political story out the other day that was arguing that uh, this very thing that you're saying that the Democratic Socialists were take the far left was taking of the party and that the Democrats needed to stop them, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, they're just regaining the ground that they lost the DLC over the last 30 years. So, yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. 
I mean, let's be clear on what's actually yep. transpired here. Okay, I mean, I, mean I, I always, I, I lived for many years in the UK, and I, I, I tell people that look, uh, in many respects, the, uh, the the British Conservative Party is is more liberal than the uh, the Democrats. I mean, you know, if you ever tried to suggest, for example, dismantling the National Health uh, Service and healthcare system in in Britain, the NHS. You know, that would be political suicide. You know, if, if, if it's ever proposed that, you know, you just say, let's turn it privatized, turn it all over to private hands, let uh, um, a few health insurance oligopolies run it, um, you'd be voted out of office in, in um, uh, the, no the next election. And, and, and by the way, they, 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 the constituencies there are designed by independent commissions. Um, it's not incumbents who are able to choose uh, to the districting for their own constituency, so um, which is another thing that could be very, very useful uh, in this country. I don't know why it's it's not done that way, but you know another one of these mysteries of American democracy that will, uh, me as a silly foreigner would never figure out. We do have some states, including the state of California, that do have independent commissions now that dis- do the districting. We had a, a proposition on, in our ballot a couple years back where we changed that. And it's it's necessary. Yeah, I think, as I recall, I think originally it was Schwarzenegger that tried to do that, introduce that. And for some reason, I thought it was noted down, but I guess uh, now it's been passed again by, which is a good, is a, is a great thing. But um, um, it, it, cause, because I, I don't understand why um, it, it, it should be any other way. I mean, it's so fundamentally illiberal and undemocratic to let an incumbent choose his own district uh, or, you know, the, the, the shape it the way he wants to secure his perpetual re-election. It's crazy. I agree, but there's a disease in this country. It's called uh, partisanship. The team sports, the diehards yeah. in both parties, like the dedicated um, – I don't vote blue no matter who, you know, type folks. They think they're playing team sports and they fundamentally lose their minds if their team loses. Yeah. If it's something that they would never agree with if the other team had done it. It's such a contradiction. And it's really been very yeah. dangerous for our democracy. And uh, Because if we can't trust the integrity of the system, where are we? We're on a slippery slope. So I feel, yeah. yeah, I feel very strongly that this this hardcore partisanship that we're that we've been seeing escalate. It's very, very bad, and I can't agree. You know, as as someone on the left, I can't agree with these hardcore partisans that think that think we should never ever criticize a Democrat, even when they're clearly wrong on something. So yeah, yeah, that's right. Or you know, even compliment a Republican. That that happens a lot right. less. Uh, a, more, a lot less these days. Although I occasionally listen to a guy like Ben Sass, the, the Republican from Nebraska, who actually does sound like an authentic conservative. He's not not a political hack, you know. And uh, I think yeah, God, yeah. Uh, there are, there are a few grown ups in the in the Republican Party after all. But you know, they're they're few, few and far they're between. All. You know, every now and then Rand Paul says something where I'm like, damn it, I agree with him. <laughs> Yeah, his father was very good. I used to always listen to his father. I remember in, in 2008 when his father was in the Republican debates, and he kept talking about you know shutting down the empire and, and, and sending a lot of these troops back home and uh, closing down a lot of these bases. And I said, yeah, you know, go, Ron, go. But uh, you know, he was he was treated like the skunk at the party by the other um, you know eight or nine uh, uh, that were running against him. But it was uh, it was it was kind of amusing to to see that um, that strain of heresy coming out. And, and weirdly enough, Trump occasionally says stuff like that. But, I, you know, obviously we know now that we've got helpful anonymous people within the administration uh, who uh, who stop him from doing the really crazy stuff as opposed to, um, you know, most of the other stuff that they think is fine for him to do. Uh, um, you know, I think that's just an appalling uh, display of where we are right now as far as our democracy goes. But there you go.
Don't disagree. Uh, so you have a piece coming out this week on the uh, tariffs, I believe. You want to tell us a little bit about that piece? Yeah, it's uh, well, it's, it's similar to what we we just talked about. Um, the uh, I think it'll be out in the next week uh, at Alternet, and I'll retweet it. But um, yeah, uh, the idea is much as I've said. You know, is, is the, the the thirty second elevator pitch is that you know globalization created uh, uh, deflation and um, uh, global labor arbitrage. And to the extent that we shut down globalization via tighter immigration and tighter, um, uh, tr- greater trade restrictions via tariffs, the more you reverse that and the more you re- uh, end the uh, deflation and, 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 and shift this back towards an inflationary uh, paradigm like we had in the 1970s. That's, that's the uh, broader um, thesis of the article. So do you think, um, do you think that, that this is just a, a, a very sort of dangerous game that he's playing that has um, really bad consequences? Or do you think there's some value to the tariffs? Um, I don't think the tariffs are the best way of uh, dealing with the problems that we, we have. I, I, I think it's going to take a lot more um, uh, stuff that he's got to do domestically. Um, but I think that his uh, intervention here, his conf- confronting China, even though it comes way too late, is valuable because I think um, every four years we have an election and you know, you've got these millions of Americans who have become the losers of globalization. And um, you, know, you have politicians saying, yeah, I hear you, I'm going to do something about this. And of course, they never do. And these are the types of voters that, that uh, supported Trump in, in 2016. You know, He also promised to... Um, um, address their concerns. Now, I, of course, I think he did it very cynically, but certainly it, his message had a lot more resonance with people um, uh, than um, Hillary Clinton's did. And um, I, so I, I, I do think that that's, um, it's something that's got to be addressed. But look, uh, my own feeling is that we made a, a, a colossal mistake when we allowed um, China into the World Trade Organization. Um, we assumed that that was going to cause them to liberalize their economy and effectively, they've directed their mercantilist practices uh, globally. They've destroyed a lot of American manufacturing. The, the job losses uh, in manufacturing intensified after China joined the WTO. And as I said before, I'm uncertain as to how we get that back. Um, we need some sort of broad-scale uh, uh, domestic Marshall Plan, no pun intended, uh, uh, for this uh, economy to um, get it back on the right right track. But um, you know, we are so far away from having something like that, that um, it, it's probably going to take some more um, pain and crises first before that happens. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think these tariffs, uh, it's just too much too late. Uh, you know, something should have been done 30 years Exactly, ago. exactly. I mean, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it, it really, uh, what's, what's going to happen is that you'll, you know, it, it'll shift from uh, China to Mexico, you know. So um, I don't think it's... Um, mm-hmm. It, it, it's really the best way to do it. I mean, now, on the other hand, if you wanted to, say, dedicate, you know, three or four trillion dollars towards remaking our infrastructure and turning it green and um, and, and reconstructing, the, uh, engaging in a huge project of national reconstruction. Now, that to me would be a very, very good economic program and would address a lot of the same problems, uh, as well as addressing other things like uh, climate change, which, of course, um, Trump and most of the Republicans don't seem to think is very important. But again, that's going to take a, a very, very different kind of a, a leadership. But that's that's where I would, um, and then I would insist 
on those kinds of programs that you have large local components. Um, um, uh, a lot of it have been made in, in um, America. You, you, um, they, some would say that's contrary to the uh, WTO rules, but you can. Uh, uh, there are certain overrides which I think could be used under uh, World Trade Organization rules so that the, the U.S. wouldn't violate that. But that, that's the way I would start to think about these things. Yeah, no, and I think you're right on that. And I also think part of the problem is uh, how how broken up our supply chain is at this point. Like if you look at an Apple iPhone, not all the parts come from one country. They come from, you know, seven different countries. And I can't imagine. That's a real problem, too. Because, you know, for example, I'll give you an even better example. The, the, um, the Dreamliner, uh, Boeing's Dreamliner, the 787, one of the problems yeah. was that because so many parts were um, manufactured in, in different uh, regions, different parts of the world, they weren't able to um, model it completely. The, the modularity wasn't uh, sufficiently cohesive to allow them to pick up the problems in the, in the initial uh, production phases. So um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you, you've got to sometimes have, uh, uh, as I say, a sufficiently large ecosystem um, where you know you've got the manufacturers, the engineers, the, uh, the the tool makers all together in one close spot, it's much easier to you know pick up these problems earlier. And um, right. um, we're, we're, but we've offshored so much of that and 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 fallen so prey to the notion that the more you can offshore, the better. And that's a shortcut because it, it you know it, you, you're you're um, you're taking the easy way out. You're doing labor arbitrage as opposed to using technology to upgrade your manufacturing and take it higher on the technology curve. No, you're right on that. It's so it's very short-sighted. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Hopefully some of this reverses. I think um, I think we're at a place, though, where something's got to give somewhere because the, the situation's untenable in so many levels. Um, so Yeah, I agree. What, I agree. So what other um, parting words do you have for us? Any Any favorite Karl Marx quotes? <laughs> yeah. Workers <laughs> of the world unite. That's-